Welcome to the Big Screen Symposium podcast. This session is from the Big Screen Symposium held in Auckland on the 4th and 5th of December 2020. In this session, storytelling for the docuseries format, producer, director and editor Arielle Tilke delves into what it means to write for a documentary series. Using her project, hit Netflix series Cheer, Arielle covers finding the narrative across the series as a whole, how to keep the heart of a character's backstory in the present tense, and simplifying story for efficiency and dramatic impact while still honouring truth and integrity. This session is presented by the US Embassy. Arielle is introduced by producer Cass Avery. Kia ora tato. Um, so yes, it's such a pleasure to be introducing Arielle. Um, for the series, for the session, I'm sure a lot of you are very familiar with her work um, because we've seen a lot of what she's done. Probably Cheer is what's hooked a lot of you in. Obviously, that was filmed over a few months last year, but it completely blew up in the new year on Netflix just before we all went into lockdown. But uh, having got really, really committed to all those amazing characters that she brought to the screen in that series, um, she was co-director, co-producer and editor on that series. And um, it all came about because she'd been working in the creative team as well on another series that I'm sure a lot of you have seen called Last Chance You, which has also been on Netflix. And having worked in, in that team as Cheer was being developed, she was able to come on board right at that early stage of Cheer, coming into its, its sort of realisation as an idea and then going out and, and creating it with the, with the team that they were filming. Um, but she's also done shows like Chef's Table, which is quite a different, a rather than the Verite Follow Doc kind of a format, Chef's Table is that amazingly kind of poetic, more contemplative and meditative style of documentary making. But having worked across all of those genres um, is kind of interesting testimony to her skill. Um, but, you know, the, it's interesting that one of the Guardian reviews of Cheer described it as breathtaking, bone-crunching, nerve-wracking magic, which I think we'd kind of agree it was. But I think that speaks to something about her earlier career. She started out at 25 as being senior editor on true crime shows for cable. And it's all, you know, it's all about how information is imparted at what points in the story to, to reveal and entice and, and do all those things with your audience. And, um, and I know that... She has, in, in one of her um, earlier sessions, described that as a boot camp in documentary storytelling starting out in that true crime genre. Um, so what she does now, of course, having moved from... She's done an unusual journey, moving from being an editor into now producer and director and editor and starting out in cable shows where she was telling other people's stories. The, the want was to move into being to create and tell her own and have a, a bigger role and a control of that process right the way through, which is an amazing place to have come to. Um, and so before I hand over to Ariel, um, do make sure that you're using the, the Slido app that you've got. Make sure you're in the right room. And um, I'll be coming back to give us 10 or 15 minutes of Q&A at the end. And um, don't make one of your questions, when is the next season of Cheer starting? I tried that one on her when we were talking earlier this week, and she says it's not, she can't comment on that. Nobody will know yet. So that's a question not to worry about asking. But um, I will take all your others back to her at the end of the session. So it's my very, very great pleasure to welcome Ariel Kilka to the BSS. Hi. <laughs> Um, thank you so much for having me. Uh, congratulations, everybody, for being able to be in a room with somebody else. Um, that's something that we here are still not able to do nine months in, so <laughs> congrats on the public gathering. Um, one of the positive things about uh, this whole event being pushed back was that I've actually given a very similar lecture via Zoom two other times, so you all got your money's worth. <laughs> I'm pretty good at it now. <laughs> Um, so thank you for that introduction, Cass. Um, there are a couple things that I want to talk about in terms of storytelling across a documentary series format, because it's a very unique format, um, particularly in a serialized series where 
you know, there's a continuous storyline throughout each episode. And so the biggest, the big picture thing that I want to talk about is what it means to write for documentary. And so a lot of people don't realize, but maybe a lot of people in this room do because a lot of you are filmmakers, um, is that editing for documentary is very akin to writing. And so that is kind of like the umbrella thing to keep in mind as I kind of go through some of these points and show some of these examples. Um, and so something that I've found really useful in terms of communicating with colleagues, because, you know, I was a supervising producer for cheer, sorry, a supervising editor for cheer. And so, you know, it takes an army of people to make something with the kind of machinery that a docu-series takes like that. And so there's a lot of collaboration involved. And so in order to better communicate about, you know, what somebody was working on in episode one and two, and how that affects the work that someone's doing down the line in episode four and five, um, I kind of, me and my team came up with like, I mean, I kind of realized some of this stuff through the process. Um, and then being asked to give a lecture, give lectures about it. Um, I've been forced to like doc, you know, dot it all down. And it's all, it's all stuff that we really talked about. And so the three, the three big things to look for when you're formatting a docu-series in this format is the external narrative, individual conflict, and then the most important part, which is the overall theme. And so when you're looking at any given character's trajectory and, you know, what is the A, B, and C of their story, what's the beginning, middle, and end, you're keeping these three key things in mind. And so, you know, using cheer as an example, the external narrative is how will they perform at Daytona? You know, will they win the championship? Will they win the ring? That's the, the external conflict, right? And then... Because this kind of a series has an ensemble cast, you know, you're, you're juggling multiple storylines, multiple characters that you have to kind of balance out across six episodes, you know, and figure out when to delineate and when to communicate certain parts of their story to the audience. So you have to look at the individual conflict within that external narrative. You know, how is this one particular person struggling, what are their goals, what are they up against, you know, in a way that's unique, that makes this one person, what, what's different in this person's struggle. And then the overall theme, that's kind of the through line, the heartbeat, that is really what the show is about, right? Because, you know, with a lot of the work that I've done, both, you know, Last Chance You, Cheer, Chef's table, whatever it is, it's like it's not about food. It's not about cheerleading or football. It's really about these people and who they are and why they're doing what they're doing. And so, the sooner you can find and figure out what your your themes are, and there might be more more than one, um, the better off you'll be. And so that you know every decision that you make as an editor or in the field is kind of coming back to this same heartbeat of, of an answer, you know, a question that you're trying to answer, so to speak. Um, and so with that, I'll, I think it makes sense to watch the clip and kind of keep in mind thinking about the external narrative, the individual conflict and the theme, and then I'll talk about all of those and how they relate to the clip. So we can play clip one. I hide my emotions and my feelings and stuff like that. I don't like to talk about them. I just keep it all bottled in until it builds up so much over time that I like break down to like the point where I just cry. Monica knows what you can Yeah, yes or you landed into the full, or wonderful. Like, you did tutor with that. Like, I should be able to do it easier. You're good, Morgan. <laughs> you just have to like deal with it, push through it. You were good yesterday, it's just weak. I know, you're fine. I hold things in because I feel like I'll be judged sometimes. And like, I care a lot about what people think about me. 
in my head, I just feel like I'm never good enough for people. People always say that they think I'm like rich and like my life's perfect because of my social media. And yeah, I'll have like makeup on and like a cute outfit and stuff like that. But the reality of it is like growing up, I didn't have any of that. Want to get some oats for the horses or anything? I'll grab a bucket. Come on. Now they're coming. Hello, sunshine. Um, I didn't really have a lot of close friends growing up. I had friends that were in sports and cheer with me, and that's pretty much it. One, get out. Bear. Hi. Okay. Get in. I call my grandparents Grandma Papa, even though I literally could just call them Mom and Dad. But before I got into custody with my grandparents, I would say that my brother was my only family member. Her biological mom disappeared out of the situation there right off the bat, so she wasn't, hasn't been around a whole lot. Me and my dad, we didn't really have a good relationship. Once my parents split, my dad got remarried and had three kids. I guess my stepmom either didn't like me and my brother enough or didn't want us to be around. So my dad just kind of went on with her and they started doing their own thing and it was just kind of me and my brother. Pete, don't even think about it. I want to say it was my sophomore year of high school. My dad got me and my brother a trailer that we lived in alone. We would eat what we could, find this cheapest thing, a loaf of bread, ramen noodles. We at the time didn't realize how bad it was and, and weren't paying attention at that point, but she had a real, real tough time living there. I felt like super alone, like everyone was against me and I wasn't good enough. I wasn't like important to anyone. That's what I felt like. She was losing her drive, I guess you would say. And when she come and lived with us, she kind of turns things around, got to go and got motivated. And part of that is we got her back into cheer. And that, that's her passion in life. So you have to let her go and, and encourage her. I took her down to Texas, to Navarro, to the tryouts. She was a little intimidated because it was it was a step up, a big step up from what she'd been doing. I did not think I was ever gonna have a chance. I was like, they're so good, like I'm trash, I'm not gonna do it, I can't. But Monica saw potential in me and it felt like it was just the first time someone noticed me. It was like, I'm not just nobody. She like remembered my name and like just little things like that. Mom, Morgan. She's in love with Monica. She, well, she says she treats her kids like they're they're her kids, and she's like a mom to them. It's definitely better. I don't know if it's exactly where we want it, but it's better. Strict and firm, but Morgan says you you do what you're supposed to do, and it's it's it works out. Something I kind of want to talk about in terms of what it means to write for documentary. Um, a lot of that, of course, is choosing the sound bites, you know, of what someone is saying, what part of the story to tell. But it's also done visually and then also with a documentary like this um, with the verite choices. And so something when I was working on this section, 
the end of it, you know, when I was writing it and Morgan is talking about how Monica remembered her name and it was like the first time that someone noticed her. Um, you know, it's like, you have to be really creative and inventive and it's like, well, the obvious choice is practice footage because we have like hours and hours of practice footage, right? Um, but then, you know, it's like, what kind of practice footage? Is Morgan doing well? You know, maybe she's succeeding and Monica's praising her. Maybe she's doing poorly and Monica's, you know, correcting her. And so I felt like the energy of that scene and also what the grandfather is saying about, you know, she's tough, but you do what you're supposed to and it works out kind of a thing. It was like, we have a story team that we work with and they pull a lot of footage for us. Um, and so I went to the story team. I was like, let's find some footage of Morgan, you know, getting a correction from Monica and Monica's like not hot or cold, you know, like I got that specific with the request because it was like, she shouldn't be praising her in this moment. Like, so let's keep it at a bit of, you know, let's keep some like a line of tension running through there. And so they pulled like a couple of samples, um, a couple examples, and I ended up choosing that one where Monica's like, it's better, it's getting there, but we still got a lot of work to do, you know what I mean? Because um, it just kind of, um, it supports everything that we've just learned about Morgan. Um, and, then, and then also, uh, people have brought up to me a lot that last shot of Morgan looking at Monica um, when they're sitting up against the wall. And it was also brought up a lot on, on Twitter um, when I was reading through all of the responses to cheer because I couldn't pull myself away. Um, people, people talk about that shot that, that, you know, that's the moment that made them cry. That was the emotional moment. And um, it's interesting to me because, you know, I had chosen that scene that day where characters are in certain outfits, so you kind of can't cheat you know, just from anywhere. And so I just like scrubbed through that three hour practice and was like, oh, I just need like one final moment with Morgan and Monica. And then I saw them, I saw that shot. And it's like, if you had seen that shot in the context of when it was filmed, there was no emotional charge. You know I mean? Morgan was kind of just spacing out essentially. Um, but when it's just juxtaposed up against all of these emotions that we've just brought up with this section, you know, it, it reads in a totally different way. And so I just thought that was really interesting that that like resonated with so many people because it just, that's like a perfect example of like the power of editing, right? <laughs> you know, um, and and of writing because that's that's all part of it for documentary. You know, you don't have, nothing's laid out for you. You have to kind of invent things from the ground up. Um, and then also in terms of, so for that section, you know, it's like we have this emotional moment with Morgan where she's struggling to, you know, complete this pass, this tumbling pass. And the verite scene lent itself to a conversation about how Morgan is insecure. And so then it's kind of your job as like so much of being an editor for documentary is like being a psychiatrist. You know, it's like really like figuring someone out. Um, learning so much about them, I mean, perhaps like more about them than they realize themselves um, and applying it to where their trajectory ends up within the series. And so, you know, when I talk about overall themes, something that we realized pretty early on in the filming process, you know, and when we're in pre-production for Cheer, the big question that we were all asking ourselves as filmmakers is, you know, why on earth do these people want to do this? You know, because there's there's no, you know, coming off of Last Chance You where the goals are very defined. It's like these young men are struggling to become future NFL stars. That's very concrete. It makes sense. They want to have a successful career as an athlete. There's no career for these cheerleaders, you know, and it was actually kind of looked at as a problem um, when we were pitching it, you know, it was like, well, but who's going to care because, you know, what, what's in it for these cheerleaders? We don't get it kind of a thing, but that's actually what the show is about is why are they doing this? Um, and so, you know, that was the question we were constantly asking ourselves, 
Um, you know, considering the risks, it's incredibly dangerous. There's really no <laughs> benefits that they gain from it at, you know, monetary benefits anyways. And through, you know, spending time with these people and through the interviews, it became very obvious to us that what cheer is really about is how young people overcome trauma. And, you know, putting words to that as creatives in post-production, I think, is when at the point when we, we put words to it. Um, you know, you kind of can, like, fix your brain to, to orient everything um, into creating a satisfying resolution for a lot of the characters, if you're thinking of it in those terms. And so for Morgan, this is just the first part of her story, right? Because this, this uh, clip came from episode two. So this is kind of her introduction. It's like, she's you know, external narrative. She wants to be on mat. She wants to compete. She wants to win. Her individual conflict is that she's insecure and it's holding her back. And the overall theme, why is she insecure? What made her to be like this? And how does that relate to why she's cheering? And so it's not fully answered in that section that I showed you, but we're teeing it up for the fifth episode when you learn much more about her. And so this section is kind of like a teaser of, you know, we learned that she was in a trailer by herself, that her dad put her there and she felt like she didn't matter to anybody, which is trauma, you know? And then you kind of learn more about just how bad it got down the line. Um, and so that's, you know, that's another part of writing for documentaries, how to dole, how to dole information out. And especially, you know, like the work that I did on um, Chef's Table, and then I think most of the work that I've done actually has been episodic, where each, each episode is like a standalone story. And, you know, Chef's Table is, does it so well, and it's really beautiful and engaging and um, impactful the way that that kind of storytelling is. Um, but it's just so much more contained, you know, I mean, like the episode of Chef's Table that I did, it's like, you have to figure out how to fit everything into 55 minutes. So you basically have like 100,000 different directions that it could take. But for Cheer, where you have to fit six people's, you know, five or six people's stories in six hours of content, it's like, you have like a million different directions it could take. So it's just, um, you know, I, I, I was talking to Cass about this on our, when we spoke the other day, is that this just takes time. You know, it, it takes time and dedication. And I like to talk about that publicly because, you know, a lot of times it's, it seems like when, when an edit is, like when a cut is working really well, it almost feels like there's no other way that it could have been. And like everything, like, oh, the documentary gods were really smiling on you guys because everything just really lines up and it all works out, you know? But it's actually you as a filmmaker and a storyteller have to shape everything so that you can resolve it or leave it unresolved in a way that is satisfying. And so like I've, I've like the example of, Morgan, you know, it's like, oh man, you guys are so lucky she, she made Matt. And, you know, that's really satisfying. That's so great. And it's like, well, if she hadn't made Matt, um, you know, which as a reminder, if you don't remember, is that that means that she gets to perform at Daytona. So if she hadn't gotten to perform at Daytona, then we would have taken a totally different direction with her story. And, you know, maybe we would have included the aspects of, you know, she, you know, something that didn't make the cut because it didn't make sense is that she had had surgery on her ankle and that was, she thought that that was holding her back. So she hadn't end up performing there and maybe it was because of her ankle problems. That would have been a storyline that we were following, you know? And so it's like, you really are controlling the narrative. Um, and it's, you have to, so much of it is filtering out the noise you know, because there's so much footage, so many different ways to go that like just keeping it very narrow, um, but rich, if that makes sense, um, is, is the way to go. So uh, the next point that I wanna talk about before I watch the next clip um, is, 
The importance of keeping the heart of a character's backstory in the present tense. And so what I mean by that is there's, you know, with, with these kinds of verite shows, you're following a present tense story, which like, again, I'll use Jeff's Table as an example where, as a counter example, that, you know, Chef's Table is kind of a reminiscing about someone's comeuppance and kind of a lot of it's told in the past tense. You know, it's a storytelling. Um, but with the cinema verite, you're capturing something as it happens and you're watching people react to it in the moment. And so the trick comes, you know, how do you, when you're expanding someone's story to talk about their backstory and where they came from, which is really, you know, the heart of, of these shows that we do, like these are the real emotional um, moments where you really learn to understand somebody. Um, something that we've realized is really important is whatever part of their story you decide to tell, because of course there's a bunch of endless amounts of, of versions of their life story that you can tell. But if you keep it relevant to what they're struggling with in the present tense, it just feels so much more earned. Um, it feels less cheap and it, it, it resonates and um, it's just, it's just the way to go. <laughs> I mean, essentially like in order, you know, and so like for using, I don't know, like there, there's always like moments that you've seen, I'm sure in other shows where it's like, someone has a really gut-wrenching backstory, you know, maybe they've had some real tragedy in their life and it's like, and you're kind of just telling the audience because it's like, that feels like good TV. You know what I mean? And you can feel that as a viewer, you know, you watch it and it's like, okay, yeah, that's definitely sad. Nobody can deny that that's not sad. You know, if like someone's had a death in the family or something like that, but if it's totally irrelevant to like what this person's going through in the present tense, I feel like it just doesn't belong in the series. You know, it just doesn't, it just doesn't really matter. I mean, sure. It can make someone feel a little bit sad, but it's not gonna, it's not any more deep than that. Um, so we can go ahead and play the second clip and I'll, I'll kind of talk more about it as an example. I told Lexi from the very beginning that you are a very, very talented girl. This could take you a long way if you just put it in the right direction. She told me that she wants to do something more with her life and that's when I really decided that I was going to help Lexi get to Navarro and do whatever it took because she's told me all about her past and that's why I wanted her to get away from it. So. When the divorce happened, she took it the hardest. You know, for the longest time I was in a, in a depression. So I wasn't there for my kids like I feel like I should have been. We just tried to do the best we could to show her our love. But sometimes it's not enough, you know, so. Freshman year, I'd probably say that was the worst year. She was skipping school. I'd drop her off and she would leave. Sometimes I wouldn't even know where she was. She'd have these older kids come up and pick her up from school. And then Lexi ran away. She was gone for a while. She went to live with some people. I didn't know where she was. By her junior year, she quit school. She just like, it was extremely hard. I kind of like lost myself for a little bit. I wasn't in school, I wasn't in cheer, I wasn't even working, and I was just going down a really bad path. So I was like getting hurt somehow, or always like just living risky life. What, is that my scar? Yeah. It's like, I wonder if I like all the cracked my skull. Stuff this child's put me through. <laughs> I have like a trail of all the pictures of things that, that's happened. Oh yeah. All of the times that I've been injured. She made like a that collage was... of like like every time that I've been in the hospital. This was the windshield that her head went through. That, yeah, that, that, my and head did that. that where's, yeah, where's yeah, seatbelt? That was back February. Oh god, that was so bad. And I was like, Mom. I just She's got like, off oh, the yeah, phone with so a police officer, and, and um, 
I need to go um, get, I need to go write a statement. Whenever things would piss me off, I would fight people. I've been in jail before, and I ended up getting an assault charge. I think her mom wanted to be there for Lexi and help her, but I think she needed a little bit of help due to how wild and out of control Lexi was at the time. You know, it's not every day your 17-year-old daughter is beating up somebody in the backyard. I was just as lost as she was. I didn't know how to handle somebody. I didn't know how to handle her. Lexi, calm it down. No, You're like trying to punch and punch. The worst part about it was just seeing my mom and my grandma get hurt over the lifestyle I was living. So that's when I knew like I had to do something. I called Monica. I was like, Monica, I got this girl for you. She's a little rough around the edges. But what I did for Lexi is what Monica did for me. She kind of kept me on the straight and narrow. Come on, superstar. Sometimes it's an outsider that gets through to your kid, and I don't care who it is, because I can say it till I'm blue in the face. Someone else says it to her. I, I don't care. I just want to see her succeed. Monica wanted to sign her up. I said, well, how are you going to do that? You have to get your education. And well, she got her GED. She actually tested college level, even though she had missed two years of school almost. We were so happy that she eventually decided to go down that path, because that's what we've been fighting for. That's what we've been pushing for. She wants something different for her life. She doesn't want what she had before. And I'm hoping that that will happen. It's like a one in a million chance that like, I would have ended up here. OK, yes, Lexi. I'm finally out of that hole, and it feels good. Like really good, and my family is really proud of me. So yeah, um, a little note about writing for documentary, something that I think is maybe um, a remnant from my time doing the crime work um, is, constantly trying to make the audience ask themselves a question, you know, ask, w leave them wanting more. Like, what does that mean? What's next kind of a thing. And so you can do that on a real micro level. Um, and I, I did it in that section a couple of times with her coach, the way he introduces the section is like, you know, I wanted her to get away from her past because I knew all about that, which is like, it's like, well, what does that mean? You know, <laughs> like, what else is there? And then it, again, when the grandma um, is saying, you know, you, we tried to do our best for her, um, but sometimes it's not enough. It's like, again, it's like, well, good God, like, what do these people mean? Um, and it actually pays off because what it means is that it's pretty dark, you know, and we see those photos of her injuries and we hear about the trouble that she's had and it's, it's, you get it, you know? And so you, I tee it up with those kinds of things so that the audience, it's like creating engagement, you know? Um, and then in terms of keeping her story in the present tense. So this section came from uh, episode four at the beginning of the episode um, towards the beginning. And it's kind of laying the track for the, her trajectory for the rest of that episode and for her ultimate arc, which, you know, Lexi is a person who in interviews, she gave us all sorts of details about her life that, you know, a lot of filmmakers would be like, oh yeah, we got the goods kind of a thing. And, you know, so it's kind of like deciding what should we tell? Like, what part of this story should we tell and why? And so later in the episode, it's revealed that she's the victim of online harassment. And she's then faced with a decision if she wants to revert to her old ways, essentially, and get into a fight and fight this person that did this horrible thing to her. Or if she's going to you know, lean on her teammates and and look into her future as a cheerleader and, you know, as a respected member of society and, and do right by her family. 
Um, and so that's the dilemma that she's faced with down the line in this episode. And so the the dark point essentially that we chose to to tell of her past was her getting into fights. You know, it could have been any number of things that's happened to her, any any number of traumas, but that's the one that resurfaces and stays in the present tense because presently she's faced with the decision is, is she going to go fight this person? Um, and so that informed, you know, that decision in the storytelling. And, and then ultimately, you know, we end that section with her family saying like, you know, thank God she found Navarro and she's turned it around and, um, and, you know, and Lexi's like, you know, the worst part about this was letting down my family and, you know, it's all very, it has like a very positive feeling toward her being on specifically on this cheer team and at Navarro at college, turning her life around. And we set that up because ultimately, you know, by, by the end of the season, she gets kicked off the team. Um, and so <laughs> setting it up with this, like with the high of how good it feels for her and her family, for her to be safe and moving forward in the right direction to this like ultimate low of her being kicked off the team is, is quite dramatic, but it's also just the very core of the truth. You know, it's like, it's those decisions weren't made just to make the audience go like, ah, oh, dang, you know, it's like the decisions were made because that is the reality of the situation that it, 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 is quite horrible that she's gets kicked off the team um horrible for her life essentially um and so in order to do right by Lexi do right by her family you know I mean we're talking about real people of course um you have to make the audience feel the reality of the situation and that is building up the highs and digging out the lows um so yeah that's I mean I guess that's just what informed all of those decisions. Um, the last thing that I want to talk about is how to effectively utilize cinema verite in a combination with montage. Um, and so I'll actually talk about the Lexi scene as an example of this. So we spent a lot of, we, the production of Cheer was about three months of filming with nine months of editing. And so obviously editing takes up the bulk of the time. Um, but we we did spend a lot of time, you know, um, filming with these people. And so a lot of it ends up being, you know, you're making a lot of decisions. And some of those, the best decisions that you can make are the risks of wasting time, you know? So it's like, well, we can sit in this dorm room and see if something happens, or we can go talk to this other person that's now available to us, you know? And so you're constantly making these wagers and making these decisions. Um, but a lot of times it really pays off to just like quell your anxiety to like go out there and get stuff and just, just kind of chill and let things happen and not be in such a rush to just kind of like keep things moving. Um, and one of those examples would be at the barbershop that we filmed with Lexi in her hometown, Houston, Texas. You know, it's like we went home with her, we drove her, you know, we all drove, I think it was like three and a half hours from Corsicana, Texas out there. She was going to be there for the weekend. Um, and it's like, well, I'm going to go get my hair dyed. And it's like, okay, cool. Well, let's go film you doing that. And it's like, you know, it'll be unique B-roll. So far we spent most of the time in the gym. So like, this will be great. Well, you know, we'll get her getting her hair dyed. That's something. Um, and then, you know, like a lot of, I've never really worked on like a reality TV show, like in its truest form, but I know a lot of people that have, and like what ends up happening is like a lot of prompting, you know, it's like, Oh, can you guys talk about this? Can you talk about that? You know? Um, we really try, we, we don't do that. Um, we take a fly on the wall approach. And so you just let things unfold and you just capture them. 
um, it's kind of a, it's a luxury and a privilege, of course, to be able to have that kind of time. Not everybody does, but, you know, I, I hope things are changing and people will keep talking about how long it takes to do these kinds of things because that's how you get this really rich footage. And so here we are filming this, this scene essentially in this barbershop and, um, you know, they're talking about all sorts of silly things. They're talking about the lizard, they're talking about this and that, you know, we just have like 16 people like sitting outside watching monitors, listening, just taking notes and all this stuff about like various things. And then all of a sudden it's like, they just start talking about all these injuries that she's had and they pull out the phone and they go through all these photos. And it's just a, a totally true and like natural moment that happened that was like totally un, um, you know, produced. And I, you know, in terms of verite versus montage, so much of it is taste and, you know, montage is so powerful. Um, you know, you can bring in music and control the emotion and all of that. Um, but I just love verite. I think there's nothing like it. You learn so much about somebody just watching them be, um, the way that they take a sip of water, the way that they, you know, say hello to their friend. All of it is just so much, you just, it's so intimate, you know, and you learn so much about a person through that kind of material. And so, you know, if we hadn't got that moment at the barbershop with um, the mom showing all those photos, it's possible we still would have told that part of the story, but we would have used, you know, it would have been archival based. It would have been like a cut to a photo with a slow zoom and, you know, whatever else. And so it's just, it's, but it's just so much more powerful to have it in scene in this moment, because you can also like watch the way they're reacting to it, which is like pretty flippant, you know, um, it's all kind of funny in the past, which like that in, a, in of itself is super interesting, you know? And so that is, so that's the, that's the example of Verite versus um, montage from that. And then we can play the third clip. We have time to play the third clip, right? Yeah. Um, oh, do we? Let's go for it. It's shorter. Let's just play the third clip and I'll talk about it real quick. Okay. Because y'all are ghetto. It's all right. I'm over it. The dairy. The dairy. Yes. Ooh, I think we gotta leave. We gotta leave soon. I'm still eating. No, because I gotta go. I gotta go get my stuff. Uh, TT, what are they talking about in this group? Sherbs is saying that we had to talk. Um, that how everyone was talking, saying that that we need to humble ourselves. I'm like, who's saying that they better than somebody? It's probably at me. But There's like, probably us playing with each other. And I do like say that. it all the time, like, that I'm better than everyone. <laughs> Girl, I've been saying I've been better than everybody <laughs> since I was born. If I wasn't better than everyone, I wouldn't be in center. They be crying too much on this team for me. I don't know how the energy for them. No, 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 no. I'm not going to stop saying it. <laughs> if it's not directed everyone. at nobody, then it shouldn't be no problem. I'm tired of them always I'm crying. sorry that I'm better than Jerry. I'm sorry Excuse that I'm better me. Than don't direct nothing at me. <laughs> oh, we're better than you, so be quiet. Yeah. Huh? We're better than you. Yeah. You're, be you're beneath us. Oh, oh, really? Oh, that's how we got this competition. Uh, in April. Yeah. Oh, y'all cold. Y'all like number one type? Period, yeah. point yeah. blank. Yeah. There's nobody better than us. Uh-huh. Y'all can bust a move real quick? Bust a move. You want to bust yeah. a move today? Just flip it. <laughs> 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 you got it. Yes, yes, hey, yes, yes. Round of applause. Hey, cold, boy. Okay. Boy, you cold with a bitch, man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <sighs> I cannot believe the GP actually came up to me as hogs. That's cute. <laughs> that never happens. That never happens. <laughs> okay. So that's kind of one of my favorite minutes. I'm sorry, the um my favorite moments from the series. Um it was also the easiest to edit because we didn't have to <laughs> <laughs> write a bunch of lines for it. Um, but it's, you know, it's kind of this moment, like throughout the series, they live in, these cheerleaders live in such a bubble, you know, they're just in the gym, they're with each other, they're in each other's dorms and they're, they're safe there because of that. And so they exist in this like really bizarro um, like world that's like shielded from the outside world. And this moment when they're just walking through the campus and it's like, they just happen to, you know, I think those are basketball players 
they see them and they've heard the reputation of the cheer team. And it's like, it just kind of gives you this like 10,000 foot view where it's like, all of a sudden you're like, Oh yeah, there's like, you know, this is what normal life is, is like, and this is them witnessing these people. And this is also like these cheerleaders responding to like normies essentially um, in a really interesting way. That's like, you can't talk about that in voiceover, you know, like, I don't even know what kind of lines we would use that somebody said to kind of give the audience the information that they received, just watching that scene, watching like how these guys interact, you know, especially these, you know, the, these queer guys being so safe with each other. And then all of a sudden like faced with like, you know, these like very masculine athletes like that. I mean, it's just, it's just fascinating to watch. Um, and we actually, it was kind of hard for us to, um, make the argument to keep this scene in the cut. Um, there were people that were kind of telling us that this didn't move the story along, you know, and they found it boring, you know, (laughs) that kind of thing. And, um, I'm so glad that we fought that fight to keep it in because I would actually, I would argue that it does move the story along. Um, you know, that comes from an episode about Ladarius and you hear where he comes from and what he's faced. And so giving him this moment is just really telling and it, it bolsters the information that we learn from him later in montage, you know? And so like, so kind of going back to the Lexi scene, you know, you can kind of like stop things down, give it a breath, let something play out, learn about them through that, and then like bring it back in with the music um, and the B-roll that's, you know, chosen with with real strong decision behind it kind of a thing. And so balancing those two, I think, is the real sweet spot that we've found with this type of filmmaking that feels really right. Um, I, I I love filmmaking, of, you know, documentary filmmaking of all types. And I think Chef's Table is a beautiful, beautiful version of, you know, mostly montage that they've really perfected. Um, and then I also love a lot of like, it seems like it's almost an older style of like strictly cinema verite, um, where you're just kind of like sitting back and, and watching something unfold. But yeah, I think that kind of does it for my lecture if we want to jump to Q&A. <laughs> Thanks, Ariel. Hi. Um, Hi. So understandably, lots of questions have come through, and a lot of it is about process, um, which is always intriguing. So I'll try and get to as many of them as we can. Um, But you've answered some of them when you talk about the fact that you you try not to direct interviews and and, and invade, and sort of not invade, that's a terrible word, but, but impose on the process while it's playing down. But do you go back and do interviews later on in order to help fill out your story? What's how do you how do you handle the verite versus the interview order of shooting? Sure. So um, yeah, there's a lot of communication between post production and production, and so we typically start editors and a story team in you know almost immediately as soon as filming starts. And there's just kind of this, um, the people that are going through footage are hearing things in a way that is so much more um, thorough than you're able to hear it in the field. You know, I mean, you're listening when you're in the field, of course, but you just miss things and you're, you know, you've got a million different things going on in your head that you have to do and then what you have to do next and all these things. And so that communication is really key. Um, And then also we tend to do a lot of pickups. Um, a lot of pickup interviews, essentially. Sometimes pickup verite, you know, goes hand in hand with that. You try to create, you know, when you go out to film, you find out if they're doing something and that kind of a thing, and you you try to fold that in. Um, but a lot, so much of the discovery is happening in post-production that 
you know, it's not until four months into the edit where you figure a character out, you know, and it's like, oh, you know what? Like the reason he's struggling with this is not that because he's saying it's this because that's what he thinks, but like, he's actually wrong. You know, like we, we see it as this. And so, so much of it is playing therapist, you know? And so it's like, then you communicate that to the team that's going back out there or you are the team that's going out there. And then it's like, so, you know, but what about this aspect of it? And it's like, oh, you know, I haven't really thought about that, but you're right. (laughs) You know, like sometimes that happens. Sometimes you're wrong. And sometimes they're like, well, no, but it's this. And it's like, oh, okay, that's equally as interesting, you know? So it's, it's, it's really like, I mean, God, like spending a year on that project, it's like, you really just, you get into the psyche of, of everybody that you're, the stories that you're telling. Um, and, you know, something that's like a, a lot of times on my mind and I constantly try to do with my work is, you know, making sure that I'm conveying a person in the way that I know them, because, you know, you watch, you know, a two hour interview and you've done three or four of those and not to mention all of the verite footage and all of this stuff. And so it's like, when you have all that information in your head, it's like, I feel like I know this person very well. And so it's now my job as a storyteller to make sure that the audience knows them in the way that I do. And that's ultimately to get to, you know, the real truth, which is, a hard thing to do in a short amount of time. <laughs> Use of the word truth is interesting because it taps straight into a question that someone else has asked, which is that interesting thing about documentary where you're dealing with what can be described as truth versus the perspective that you're actually bringing and the characters that you're developing and creating on screen. And I know that certainly in Cheer, you know, there, is, there are aspects to the coach that, that people really struggled with and there were elements to her that she seemed a villain. And how do you, how do you navigate truth and entertainment and respecting and looking after your talent? Yeah, it's a, that's a great question because it's a really hard thing to balance and it's, it's pretty much the most important thing, right? It's, you know, in one aspect, protecting these people because they've given you the the rights, the access to their lives to tell their stories. Um, and that's a huge privilege that we take very seriously. And so, you know, doing right by them um, is the number one priority. That said, doing right by them means being truthful and it means not sugarcoating things. Um, you know, and we, we showed the dark and the light, you know, particularly with Monica, um, even though it was you know, there's a particular scene that if people remember where she's kind of making a cheerleader repeat his routine, even though he's experiencing pain. And it's like, we never thought for one second that we shouldn't use that footage, you know, because it's it's painting the, the full picture. Um, and I think audiences really feel that and they respect it. Um, and it allows them to see things as complete, like they are in real life and complex as they are in real life. You know, I think there's like a tendency that happens with a lot of TV where, you know, someone is the villain, someone's the hero, or, you know, if it's fabricated, someone is villainized and they, you know, they're forced into being a villain through the the storytelling. Um, But real life is so much more complicated than that. Someone can have good qualities and bad qualities And we try to present that information without judgment, you know? And so it's like, we put this information up with Monica and that athlete, and then we went and talked to him within two hours. And he, you know, that is the full truth is that he says like, I'd do anything for Monica. She's like my mom, right after we just saw him crying on the floor because she made him do this thing. Um, And so, you know, I like to, the kind of work that I'm interested in doing is the kind of work that makes people think about their own life, think about other people's lives and examine it in a way that's complex and that stays with them. You know, I think we, we have a tendency to oversimplify things. Something's either right or wrong. Um, I mean, it's (laughs) happening in our politics out here quite a bit, you know, and I think it's, it's, 
it's not a service to what it is to be a human, you know? I mean, there's just so much more going on and, and just people being able to empathize with other people and understand where somebody's coming from and bear witness to the dark and the light is just like massively important with art. Thank you. Um, and in terms of actually your process, one thing that there's a, some detail that might be interesting for people to understand is what was the, in the field, how many cameras and what size crew were you actually working with at any one time? Um, we had two camera units, uh, not quite the entire time. I would say about half the time we had two camera units. For the most part, we had one camera unit. Um, and so one camera unit, we keep things very small and so that you can have a very minimal footprint and make it easier for people to forget that you're there, you know, because that's where you're going to get more authenticity and, you know, the just the, the better experience of who this person is if you keep it really small. So I think in general, we had like between 10 and 15 people total, but not all of them were like, you know, they're there. We had like DIT, you know, downloading footage elsewhere and like that kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. But I think at the, at the minimum we had 10, at the most we had 20. Okay. <laughs> By our standards, that's significant. <laughs> Just so you understand the murmur in the room. Um, and in terms of the process, once you've actually captured the footage, paper editing, structuring the story, actually getting through the footage, what's the process? And I know you and I talked a bit about this the other day. I was impressed by how many suites you had running and how many storyliners you had working. What is your process after, with, after you've got what you've got in the field? Yeah, so we for this show, we had six editors total, but not all of them were there for the duration of, of the edit. Um, myself and my husband, actually, we were the supervising editors. And so all of the footage, all of the edits that other people were working on went through us um, at the end of it because we kind of like had the master plan essentially in our head. Um, and I also, um, I just was so involved in this project, you know, in part because it was, you know, I was there since its conception and everything else. And um, so I became quite perfectionist about it. Um, and so I would come in on the weekends for every, every weekend for like four months straight and would do what they call string outs for the other editors, which is like, I would write it essentially. So I would, you know, choose it like, you know, we need a section about, um, you know, the superstitions that these cheerleaders have. And so I would have the story team, like grab me all the bites about superstition. Um, they would grab them all. And then I would come in and I would just, it's basically doing the A roll, right? Yeah. So it's like, you just lay down all of the, all the bites that you want. And then, you know, sometimes I'd be like, oh, and I think this music track goes with it and I just like pass it off to another editor kind of a thing. That's a bit atypical. Um, most, most shows I think are a bit more delineated out. And, um, but yeah, I guess I, I turned into a bit of a control freak on this one. And going to the other end of the process and something that's key to this genre for all of us um, making it is trust. And, and right at that beginning part of the process, obviously, while you were working on Last Chance You, Cheer came up, and obviously there was a process where you went and met with the people involved and decided whether or not to pursue it and needed to get them on board. And how did you do that? Yeah. Um, you know, it's not a one-size-fits-all, I guess. Um, and, you know, so, so much of it, you know, you can use the word casting essentially because that's like the easiest word to use when you're deciding, you know, whose story to tell. Um, there's a lot that goes into that, but most of it's instinct. Um, and, but part of that decision is someone's eagerness to tell their story. Um, you know, some people are really hungry to be heard, um, which is, really great and a lot of people deserve to be heard and need to be heard and haven't been heard enough um and then some people are too eager you know and they're you know performing for the camera that kind of a thing 
Um, and so then as you're kind of moving forward and building trust, I think what I've found throughout my career that's really useful is being really open and honest yourself and being really clear about your intentions. Um, you know, there, I'm sure there's some producers that are really good at, you know, being super manipulative and seeming like they're presenting their true intentions, but actually they're, you know, tricking you into being the next reality TV villain kind of a thing. Um, but I've found, you know, on, on other projects that I've worked on since cheer that people really respond to just being a human being, you know, um, you present yourself as not as like, you know, somebody looking in at an animal in a zoo, you know, you, you talk about your own life and you talk about what you, you want for this project, um, to the extent that it, you know, it doesn't put someone in their own head or doesn't make them nervous, but just that, you know, make, make sure they know that you have their best interest in mind and you should have their best interest in mind if you're in the business of filmmaking. And if you don't have their best interest in mind, that you shouldn't be doing this line of work. Um, but yeah, I think it's just being a decent human being. Well, thank you. That seems like a perfect place to end and we're out of time. Um, I just want to thank you so much, Ariel, for sharing your time with us today at the BSS. Thank you. Thank you all so much. This is really a pleasure. Thank you. Hopefully next time I can be there in person. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. The Big Screen Symposium 2020 was brought to you by Script to Screen and J&A Productions. We gratefully thank our event partners, the New Zealand Film Commission, New Zealand On Air, Te Mangai Paho, Images and Sound, Screen Auckland and AUT. Voiceover is by me, La Lena Faunati, and music by Poddington Bear. 